This is the Green Street News, the environmental show and podcast, Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how it may impact your life and your health. Welcome back. On today's show, we'll talk with a scientist who wanted to find out what goes into making a plastic bottle, the kind of plastic bottle that might hold your water, your juice, your soda. And it turns out the bottle is holding a lot more than that chemicals you really don't want, and those chemicals are going down your throat along with the beverage you wanted. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty Wood, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Lots of things. I have three, I think, really interesting articles. Okay. The first one was written by Jen Christensen, and it was on CNN. The title is, It's So Hot in Arizona, Doctors Are Treating a Spike of Patients Who Were Burned by Falling on the Ground. I heard about this. Yeah. It is so hot in Maricopa County, Arizona, that people are being brought into the emergency room with significant, sometimes life-threatening burns. For the past three or four weeks of this record heat wave, people have been burned just by falling on the ground. Dr. Kevin Foster, director of burn services at the Arizona Burn Center at Valleywise Health said, quote, Summers are our busy season, so we anticipate that this sort of thing is going to happen. But this is really unusual, the number of patients that we're seeing and the severity of injuries. Asphalt is dark and dense, and when the sun shines on asphalt, its dark color causes it to absorb light and it heats up. On a hot day, asphalt can easily be 40 to 60 degrees hotter than the air, which has ranged from 114 to 119 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 154 to like 160 degrees, the pavement. That's correct. Quote, it can take only a fraction of a second to get a pretty deep burn, Dr. Foster said. For people who have been on the pavement for 10 to 20 minutes, the skin is completely destroyed and the damage often goes down deep, meaning it is a third degree burn. Patients with third degree burns will require multiple surgeries and have to spend weeks or even months in the hospital and have years of reconstructive surgery and therapy. It is really a substantial injury, Foster said. Well, it's climate change. You know, it's a heat dome over the whole western, southwestern part of the United States. And yet people are driving their cars. People are taking jet planes all over the world, you know, to go see friends, go have fun. I mean... When is somebody going to say, you know what, maybe I won't take that trip. Maybe I won't go to Vegas to go see some shows. Maybe I'll stay home and not not burn, you know, we won't need to burn so much fuel taking people around the world in jet airplanes, among other things, you know. You know, I was listening to somebody who was talking to a group of students about change, about how fast change occurs. And he's saying, you know, for, for small changes, it could take a year or two for changes on a local level, right? For changes, it could take maybe 10 to 20 years to really get substantial change. He says, and for for big global issues, he said it could take, you know, 400 years. We don't have 400 years. That's exactly what I said. I actually raised my hand and I said, we are in a crisis right now. And you're going to tell me it's going to take 400 years before we can solve this? I don't think so. 
We have to do it now. Okay. Okay. So don't fall in Maricopa County in Arizona. In fact, don't go there. Don't go there. And, and if you have to be there, don't fall on the pavement. Yeah. Right. Okay. This is another article written by Allison Guy. It was published in Environmental Health News, and it is called Environmental Groups Call on the EPA to Ban the Toxic Chemical Vinyl Chloride. Mm, good luck with that. Vinyl chloride made headlines in January when a train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, released 1.1 million pounds of the chemical into the air, water, and soil, prompting evacuations and a month-long cleanup effort. Now, environmental groups are demanding that the EPA act to ban petrochemicals like vinyl chloride and have delivered a petition to the EPA with more than 27,000 signatures. Hmm. Vinyl chloride is currently on a list of 106 chemicals the EPA is considering for safety assessment under the Toxic Substances Control Act, a process the groups are urging the agency to begin in earnest. Judith Enk, the president of the nonprofit Beyond Plastics, told Environmental Health News it was long overdue for the EPA to use its existing authority to ban vinyl chloride. Under the Toxic Substances Control Act, Enk explained, the EPA would be able to restrict vinyl chloride without needing congressional approval. She should know. She's a former EPA regional administrator, right. Judith Enk. Region 2, correct. The EPA classified vinyl chloride as a carcinogen in 1974 and barred its use in several applications, including hairsprays, drugs, and refrigerants. Earlier this year, the agency announced a slew of proposed updates to the Clean Air Act aimed at reducing communities' cancer risk from air pollutants, including vinyl chloride. This proposal is expected to be finalized in March of 2024. Yeah, but somebody's Here we go again. In March of 2024. Yeah. I mean, all these things take so much time when we know how toxic this chemical is and we've known that it was a carcinogen since 1974. You know, now we're going to start looking at it and, you know, it, you know, the proposal, just the proposal to bar its use under the Clean Air Act is expected to be finalized in March of 2024. 50 years. 50 years yeah. it's taken them. Yep. yep. And they knew it. Yeah, that's what yeah, I'm saying. They knew it. Okay. Vinyl chloride is almost exclusively used in the manufacture of PVC plastic, mm -hmm. which is found in water pipes, medical supplies such as IV tubing and blood bags, electrical insulation, imitation leather, toys, and food packaging. At a news conference announcing this petition, Enk carried a large PVC rubber ducky <laughs> as a reminder of the ubiquity of this plastic in everyday yeah, products. Way to go, Judith. The majority of the country's vinyl chloride plants are located in Texas, Kentucky, and Louisiana. Many of these facilities are situated near predominantly black, brown, and low-income areas, such as Cancer Alley, a stretch of the Mississippi River nicknamed for its high rates of cancer and other illnesses. For Enk's organization Beyond Plastics, PVC piping is of particular concern. In November 2021, Congress approved $15 billion for local governments to replace lead pipes with safer alternatives. In an April report, Beyond Plastics urged U.S. municipalities to consider stainless steel or recycled copper instead of PVC. We know about this. We're yeah. very concerned about communities replacing lead pipes with PVC pipes. We know that there are communities across the country where they have actually done this, where they have used PVC for water supply, right? For water supply pipes. And those communities have had higher incidences of leukemia and lymphoma. So 
this is a real problem. And local decision makers need to understand that the pipes themselves are not the greatest cost for replacing lead pipes. It's digging up the street. It's street. digging up the street sure. and all that stuff. All and the, the pipes, even though the copper pipes are a little bit more expensive, that's what you want. You know what really hurts is that it'd be one thing if the, if the industry knew and kept it secret from everybody. But the government knew. Oh, yeah, everybody knew. Everybody knew. Uh, you know, what do you say to something like that? Holy Last Christmas. one. Yeah. This is from Americans for Responsible Technology, written by Doug Wood. And the title is New Federal Bills on Wireless Infrastructure Eviscerate Local Control. Mm -hmm. I know about this. I bet you do. A new <laughs> bill recently introduced in Congress represents an unprecedented and dangerous infringement of local government's authority to manage public rights of way and land use, according to the nonprofit Americans for Responsible Technology, or ART. The group claims the proposed legislation strips local governments of property rights and monetary compensation in favor of cable, wireless, and telecommunications providers. The bill also waives historic preservation and environmental rules. Yet in return for these gifts to the industry, the bill imposes no obligations on wireless companies to provide broadband to unserved and underserved Americans. In the 1996 Telecommunications Act, Congress wisely granted local authorities control over how wireless technology is deployed in their communities. H.R. 3557 takes that control away and gives it to the federal government instead. Wireless companies and site developers don't like local zoning laws. They claim local authorities are getting in the way of progress. But in most communities, antenna applications are being routinely approved and antennas are being installed. Local authorities are only trying to prevent the reckless and uncontrolled deployment of wireless antennas in their communities. Let's be very clear about this, says ART founder Doug Wood. Transmitting data wirelessly is an inferior technology, not capable of providing the speed, security, low cost, and reliability required for full participation in the digital economy. Wireless is no substitute for high-quality fiber-optic wired broadband connections. Fast-tracking wireless connections will not necessarily deliver services to underserved and unserved communities and will not close the digital divide, says Wood. In fact, it will only perpetuate it. Quote, we don't need a second digital divide between those with access to high-speed Internet and those stuck with wireless, he said. Critical environmental and historic protections currently in place to protect our natural environment and historic areas from reckless and unwarranted placement of antennas will be eliminated. H.R. 3557 is the worst kind of federal legislation, a giant giveaway to the rich and powerful wireless industry with no benefit to taxpayers. It shreds the concept of home rule in favor of top-down federal control. Learn more about this bill and how to help oppose it at Americans for the numeral four capital RT dot ORG. That's Americans for RT dot ORG. This is a worldwide effort by the wireless community to get rid of local control. They're sick and tired of local people getting in the way of putting their, letting them put their what antennas. What getting in the way? It's their community. They know every single street. They know every single person living on every single street. They know where the daycare centers are and where the, of the homes for the elderly. They know all of these things and all the schools and the playing fields and where people gather and they want to have control over where these wireless antennas are installed. And they should. You know how you tell me every once in a while, don't tell me what to do? I tell you that all the time. That's the wireless. Not once in a while. That's, 
That's the wireless companies. Don't tell us what to do. We want to put our antenna right in the middle of Main Street, and we're going to put it there. And that's basically what these bills do. And if you don't like it, the FCC will have the final decision. The FCC in Washington will decide whether you can put an antenna at the corner of Maple Avenue and, you know, in First Street. Not your local, not your local board. They can't decide. It's going to be the FCC. Anyway, Americans4RT.org. Check out the information about HR 3557. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Some environmental campaigns take a long time to mature. They start small, they attract a group of ardent supporters, and then they labor along, sometimes for years, making incremental progress, but it's slow, hard going. The campaign against nuclear power comes to mind, or the campaign to break our addiction to fossil fuels, or stop all war. And then there are campaigns that seem to have some sort of extra energy that catch the imagination of the public and spread through the media on programs like this and begin to develop a momentum of their own that's almost unstoppable. It seems to us that we may be on the threshold of just such a campaign. And that campaign is plastic pollution. You may think of plastic pollution as the accumulation of the world's plastic trash in our oceans or washing up on the shores of some distant island. There's no doubt that contamination of the world with plastic trash is an environmental travesty for which we all share some of the blame. But now we're talking about the pollution of our bodies with the toxic chemicals that are used to make the plastic we use every day. From our Starbucks iced coffee container to our shampoo bottle to our little package of ketchup in our takeout meal, plastic is all around us. And perhaps no single item made from plastic is quite as ubiquitous as the plastic bottle. Every time you sip on a plastic bottle beverage, you're microdosing with toxic chemicals that can affect your health or your family's health. That's Mike Beliveau, MIT trained scientist and executive director of Defend Our Health, a nonprofit organization working to reduce toxic chemicals in our food, water, and products that are threatening our families, our climate, and our communities. Recently, Mike and his team of scientists have focused their attention on the lowly plastic bottle. Well, we all know we have a plastics crisis. Most people think about it as a waste issue. Plastics litter the oceans and the lands, and um, too little of it is recyclable or recycled. Uh, certainly, it's a terrible waste problem. But we think that we need to reframe the plastics issue as a matter of environmental health and climate justice, because it's the production and use of plastic that has bigger impacts upstream before it ever becomes waste, than the waste disposal, waste mismanagement itself. So we wanted to take a look at a very common plastic item that everyone could relate to, the plastic bottle, you know, used for bottled water or, or soda or juices. You know, some 85% of beverages are packaged in plastic. And we wanted to see what was hidden behind the bottle because when people you know briefly think about whether they should toss or recycle the bottle when they when they down their beverage they treat it as a benign entity it's clear doesn't smell bad doesn't taste bad but we knew that there was a, a deeper toxic unjust story to be told so we did a deep dive into what does it take to make a plastic bottle 
And what we found was shocking. People don't realize that chemicals migrate out of a plastic bottle into the beverage that you're consuming. Uh, the science that's been published shows that 150 different chemicals have been shown to escape from the plastic into a plastic bottle beverage. We drilled down on one of those that we know the most about, and that's a metal called antimony. And antimony is a probable human carcinogen. We know it causes cancer in workers that are exposed to it, and it has all the trappings of causing cancer in the way that uh, biologists determine that. And this substance is added, it's kind of the final spice when they make the plastic resin. It's a catalyst. It's used to speed up the final reaction to make the plastic. Well, some of this metal or metalloid material, antimony, is carried forward into the plastic. You can measure it in the plastic itself, and some of it migrates out of the plastic into the beverage. We tested 20 plastic bottled beverages purchased at retail, soda, juices, waters, from major brands, and we found antimony in every beverage we tested. Regular listeners to Green Street News probably will not be surprised by this revelation. For more than a year now, we have been talking about how plastic has crossed the boundary from a litter issue to a public health issue, and how the chemicals that combine with fossil fuels to make plastic are wreaking havoc not only on the environment, but on our own bodies as well. But, says Mike Beliveau, the problem is actually much deeper than that. This is also a matter of environmental justice. You know, on a population-wide basis, federal government uh, runs what's called a national biomonitoring program. Every couple of years, they go around and select 5,000 Americans randomly to get a even uh, representation. And they, they not only ask them what they eat and what they did in the previous 24 hours, but they test their blood and urine for a variety of chemicals. And th thus, they establish what the population exposure is to a whole variety of chemicals of concern. And when you look at the federal government's antimony data, you see that uh, Latinx and African-American consumers are disproportionately exposed at a higher level than white consumers. This is just on average across the American population. Further, young children uh, and older children are exposed to much higher levels than adults. So this is a matter of environmental injustice where certain groups of people are disproportionately impacted, and they happen to be groups that have the least power or face the most discrimination or oppression in our society. And that's just not right. That's, that's unjust. But the environmental injustice is even worse further upstream. <laughs> and by upstream, I mean, where does the plastic come from? So there's about 10 producers of this type of plastic, which is called PET. It has the number one resin identification code. That's the most common plastic used in plastic bottles. Uh, it's made at about 10 locations in the U.S., mostly in the Carolinas, in the Southeast. And the production of this PET plastic resin for both plastic bottles, but also for polyester clothing, because polyester is simply PET plastic in fiber form, produces a toxic byproduct called 1,4-dioxane. This is a probable human carcinogen. As you know, it's very persistent in water. It does not break down naturally in water. And there's some 20,000 industrial facilities in the United States that must report releases of toxic chemicals to the US EPA every year. And we looked at what was reported for 1,4-dioxane. 
And amongst 20,000 industrial facilities, these 10 PET production plants were in the top 20 for releases of 1,4-dioxane to both the air and also to the water. And we know that this chemical has been detected in the drinking water downstream, in the Cape Fear watershed in North Carolina, in the Ohio River uh, as well, downstream of these PET production plants. And just this month, the US EPA released a draft risk assessment that concludes that 1,4-dioxane posed from PET resin, plastic resin production, poses an unreasonable risk to human health for both plant workers, but also people that live downstream and who breathe the air downstream or drink the water. So this is a very serious uh, underreported toxic hazard that is uniquely associated with PET plastic. And PET plastic production is driven by two things, plastic bottles and polyester clothing. Those are the two major uses. Plastic bottles and polyester clothing, two staples of everyday life for tens of millions of Americans who live on bottled water or Diet Coke and wear fast fashions from H&M. People who have no idea of the trouble they're causing for others or even for themselves. If you look at the plants and their locations in Decatur, Alabama and different communities in North and South Carolina, they are disproportionately burdening lower-income communities and predominantly African-American and Latinx communities. So we have another case of an environmental injustice at the point of plastic production. But then it gets even worse further upstream because you think about the plastic plants need chemicals that they mix together to make the plastic. Where do those chemicals come from? We mapped the chemical supply chain of PET plastic and traced it back to the, not surprisingly, to the Gulf Coast of the United States, predominantly Texas, Louisiana, where the chemical industry is concentrated. And they make a chemical called ethylene oxide or ETO. Some people have heard about it because it's used as an industrial sterilizing agent, but even more of it is used, manufactured for use to make PET plastic resin. And ethylene oxide is a very potent known human carcinogen. Uh, exposure to it is associated with leukemia, lymphomas, and breast cancer. And when EPA did their risk assessment, they've concluded that that one chemical, ethylene oxide, drives cancer risk among all industrial air pollutants in the United States. It's the dominant source of cancer risk. And more than half of that chemical is used to supply PET plastic production. And again, that's driven by the insatiable addiction of the beverage companies to plastic bottles and the fashion brands to fast fashion polyester fiber. And so uh, we mapped this chemical supply chain to hold those downstream companies accountable. The ethylene oxide, when again, EPA recently did a risk assessment, they concluded that more than, even after proposed regulations that EPA has put on the table but not yet adopted, more than 3 million people would still face significant cancer risk from ethylene oxide emissions associated with PET plastic production. 64% of that population are brown and black people who live within 30 miles of these plants. So again, classic case of environmental racism.
So what about these companies like Coke and Pepsi that are publicly traded and have giant consumer markets they depend on? How are these companies responding to the new accusations about the hazardous chemicals in their products? We've met with Coca-Cola, we've met with PepsiCo, we've met with Keurig Dr. Pepper, we've met with Campbell's. Campbell's sells the, the V8 vegetable juice and plastic and fruit juices in plastic bottles. Uh, they are in denial. They, they're focused, uh, you know, they've been called on the carpet for plastic waste. You know, uh, the Break Free from Plastic Network has found that Coca-Cola is the number one plastic polluter in the world in that five years running, in that their name is on more pieces of plastic litter collected in 40 countries around the world than any other company. So they're feeling the pressure on the waste side and they have a short-term strategy, which is a, a failed strategy to try to improve the infrastructure for recycling and recycle more. Those are not bad activities, but we can't recycle our way out of the plastic crisis. The amount of plastics produced is growing exponentially. It's doubling uh, every 10 years still. And you know, if we pathetically only 30% of plastic bottles in the United States are currently collected. A third of what's collected is wasted in the process, and the rest is, is downcycled into single-use, low-grade fiber. Even if we doubled recycling, which is certainly technically feasible, that gain would be outpaced by this exponential growth in plastic production. It's beginning to dawn on more and more Americans every day that plastic is a problem, that sooner or later, and the sooner the better, we're going to have to find new ways of living that aren't dependent on plastic, or at least find new ways to make plastic that aren't toxic to our health. And we don't have a lot of time. People are getting sick and people are dying, and it's because of our addiction to plastic. Everyone knows or who's paying attention knows that you know living by a chemical production plant is hazardous to your health or working in one or near one in that they have disproportionate impacts on communities of color and low-income people however the, what we need to connect the dots what's driving that it's not simply the chemical industry uh, which is the source of the air emissions it's to make plastics and the companies that are consuming those plastics are responsible for cancer in the Gulf Coast, for cancer by the point of production, and for hazards to consumers. So we put all these together, the hidden hazards of a plastic bottle. We profiled the hidden hazards of a plastic bottle so as to hold Coca-Cola and the other beverage companies, and ultimately the fashion brands, accountable for reducing the harm and eliminating the unjust racial disparities because it's their use of plastic that's causing these problems. And that's the story that has not been told enough. Mike Beliveau, Executive Director of Defend Our Health. You can learn more about the work of Defend Our Health on the organization's website, defendourhealth.org. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our friend and guest, Mike Beliveau, our news editor, Alan Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, 
our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. Thank you.